This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Eric Weisbart to discuss his book, Songbooks, The Literature of American Popular Music. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Eric Weisbard, author of Songbooks, the Literature of American Popular Music. Eric, welcome to the show. And, you know, I really should curse your name for giving me so many more books to read. This is an awesome bibliography and, and wonderful intro to the literature of American music. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and I hope I'm not killing anybody with my reading list. <laughs> Hopefully not. It's just a, I'm a book addict, and this thing is full of of new leads, a new old leads. Um, and tell us, like, what's your purpose and what's the goal of the book? What's the fundamental narrative thesis underlying this bibliography? Essentially, I've been ridiculously bookwormish my entire life. Um, switched from science fiction to music at the very beginning of college. Um, and now almost 40 years later, I thought, all right, let's see what this adds up to. So I gave myself the, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity slash, uh, predicament of reading or rereading everything I'd meant to in the subject of American popular music and seeing if I could fit it all into a book. Um, and, you know, some would say I managed it. Some would say, why did I bother? But I had a really good time doing it. And I found a delightful time reading it and, and you know, mind expanding and, and a lot of meat on the bones to think about. One, one quote that jumped out at me from the introduction was popular music, that oddity of capitalism and the democratic rabble has long made writers bend taste, language and professional standards, anything to ping pong back the relentless flow of smashes and spins. Some people think that, like, in 2022, we're sort of sitting at the end of an era, maybe the end of a civilization. Do you feel like you're in the middle of a continuing tradition or perhaps closer to the end? Oh, I don't think that there's any more an end than there is an end to people writing novels or people delivering speeches or people simply talking to one another. I think that what we've 
experienced in the gigantic story <laughs> that this book hints at with its 250-year arc um, is essentially how um, the initial version of vernacular, which was um, people demanding to read the Bible in their own language, um, became um, all kinds of ways of being vernacular, being slangy in the sense of your community and street culture, slangy in the sense of actors and the way actors talk to each other. And then you throw in technology, which suddenly starts giving people sheet music and records and movies and radio and all these things to confront. And these become chapters in the story. These days, you'd throw in podcasts and MP3 streaming and, and all those goodies. But the larger point, which is music is part of this big modern story of people talking in their own voice and becoming fascinated by how other people talk in other voices. And then simultaneously, how this is not some folk culture story, but a capitalist story of how that becomes commodified and made formula and then challenged again, back and forth and back and forth. To me, that's the thing that's kept me interested all these decades and, you know, makes me want to just always see what the next chapter is going to bring. And one thing that you you mark as one of your tags is that the book aims to put older work in conversation with those reworking it, which it's so easy. You know, history dies with every individual, it seems like. And and the rest of us have to go back and kind of catch up with where our elders were. And I, I just want to look at one case study. There's one particular book you, you referenced that references two older books. I want you to talk about all three of them. I'm talking about Guthrie Ramsey's Race Music, which you ah. say looks back to James Trotter's Music and Some Highly Musical People and Dana Epstein's Sinful Tunes and Spirituals. Now, those are not connections I would have made, and I, I thought I was familiar with race music. But tell us make tell us about race music by Guthrie Ramsey, why it's sure. in the book, and how it connected to those two older works. Yeah, um, just, as, just as a sort of setup, one of the underlying principles of this book is that good writing on music comes from a really wide range of sources. It can be from academics, it can be from journalist critics, but honestly, it can be from so many kinds of people. Um, so James Trotter, who wrote the first book on Black American music, was doing so right at the moment when Reconstruction was ending and it was clear that um, black Americans were in for some very hard decades to come. And he wanted to celebrate black achievement. He knew that there was already this tradition of black music being sort of caricatured by blackface minstrelsy, um, which made all sorts of questions about whether actual black entertainers were playing into s social stereotypes and needed to only be respectable or his view, which was a much more modern one, which was at your best, you should be able to be all kinds of performers, all kinds of human beings. Um, um, a fascinating story with a second act, his, his son went on to be thrown out of the White House by Woodrow Wilson and protest birth of a nation. Um, but um, one of innumerable stories. 
um, somewhat lost to history. Uh, someone who was very interested in then not losing those stories to history was a librarian, Dina Epstein, who in the middle of the 20th century started just paging through primary source books, diaries and travel accounts, all written before the Civil War, looking for anything she could find referencing Black American music in the era of slavery, and wrote an incredible distillation of what she'd found, um, changed our primary source knowledge of American music forever. And Guthrie Ramsey is someone who then picks up on these histories and makes them part of what he does. He's a musician coming from a family background where, you know, you would play funk music at every family gathering, but he's in a PhD program being sternly coached to study bebop. And he decides to reject a lot of that and, and open up the scope of what he writes about in any possible direction. And part of that is his own incredible imagination. And part of that is finding new lineages. So you can find Guthrie Ramsey thinking through his relationship to both Trotter and Epstein in different pieces of writing. And I love those kinds of lineages. I love seeing how the story of not just American music, but of how American music is understood turns out to involve different kinds of characters at different moments, often with a kind of precarious relationship to intellectual life, nonetheless getting something down in a book. And once it's down there, you can't eradicate it and it will find its audience. And when it does, a new chapter opens. Awesome. And let's hear our first song. This is the University of Maryland Chorus, backed by the National Symphony Orchestra of Washington, D.C., doing When Jesus Wept from William Bear Billings, the New England Palm Singer. And that was William Billings' composition, When Jesus Wept, performed by the University of Maryland Chorus and the National Symphony Orchestra from Billings' book, The New England Psalm Singer, which is your first um, entry in the book. And, and it, I want to use it as a lead-in, kind of counterintuitively, to the main theme of the book. This is as Anglo, 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 Anglo as it can get, <laughs> you know? <laughs> new England psalms singers singing psalms from England, essentially. Some of these are new but, um, you know, this relationship between the new world and the old world without mentioning what's going to be the dominant theme in American music. And I'm talking about African-American music. This this is, you know, William Billings wasn't thinking about the future of American music or I don't know. He had no way of knowing what was going to dominate American music. But and that's one thing that, you know, I didn't start this podcast, wanted to do a history of the contentious race relations of America. But I've inevitably been dragged into it because that is the history of American music. How much did this dominate the book for you? I mean, I think that there's two forces in play 
here. Um, one is a kind of notion of democratic culture building off the Protestant revolution as a challenge to settled culture. And I think Billing is part of that when he says, you know, every composer, his own carver, he's a 26 year old tanner trying to write himself into the, um, into the songbooks. Um, his, um, his frontispiece to the book is done by Paul Revere. And, and what I do on the cover of songbooks is I suggested that we substitute for the um, all white men on the original frontispiece figures like Lucy McKim Garrison, who edited Slave Songs of the United States, or Woody Guthrie, or Amiri Baraka, Zora Hurston, Lester Bangs, Jessica Hagedorn, the contemporary theorist Fred Moten. And so for me, in a sense, even if Billings didn't necessarily have a damn thing to say about race relations, in his irreverence, in his secularism with an even a religious song context, in his um, just creating a certain kind of space, then suddenly lots of other people rush in to fill it. And where I made a choice in writing this book to divide it into a gazillion entries just shy of 160 was because I didn't ultimately think you could completely categorize the story of American music one way or another. I needed to tell it as a bunch of different riffs going in different directions, a kind of push and pull um, with things coming in one era to a kind of cul-de-sac. And then in another era, someone opens up the space and you move through again. Um, but what has become part of the story over time for sure is that black American music has been refigured uh, early on when it's a slave nation or a Jim Crow nation, there's a kind of sentimentality, both comic and tragic about black culture in the 20th century. There's this almost religious reverence for black American music as the American vernacular. And that comes through jazz, rock and roll into hip hop in the 21st century. I think even that has been seen as, in a way, reductive, only prizing black music for its connection to the streets, for its connection to style. And what we've had most recently is black scholars becoming the leadest, leading theorists of black music and insisting that we regard black culture as literary, as a mixture of the canny and the lived, as always a performance, as not in any way, shape, or form to be seen as somehow embodied in a racial identity. And so this is a big, big story. I've tried my best to piece together portions of it. I wouldn't claim to be the right person to tell it fully. Yeah, and I don't think anyone is. And, and you know, you and I have a lot of uh, low melanin privilege to process as well. And, and I'm always learning from our predecessors who blundered into so many mistakes and made many great leaps forward as well. But, you know, um, always good to look back and see the mistakes you don't want to make and emulate. And another big thread that goes through this is the music business and this, you call it a perennial source of fascination and disgust, quote, the pop complex <laughs> in a nutshell. Talk about that. How did you wrestle with the, the, the business itself? Cause there's several books in here that 
really are kind of meta books about music. They're more about the music business than music and wouldn't have been included in, in a bibliography like this a few decades ago. Yeah, no, I mean, some of it is um, a, a beautiful um, accessibility um, change. We can now look at how to write a hit song um, books that were sold for, you know, 15 cents on the streets of New York in the 1890s and 1900s, just because our friends make PDFs of them and circulate them. And boy, that makes the research go faster. Um, on the other hand, um, just as vital to me was taking a book like This Business of Music, um, which was a kind of uh, lawyer's account of how to understand the music business that went through something like 10 different publishing editions um, from the 1960s to the moment when MP3 downloading made all of its premises seem sort of um, ridiculous. And, and so on some, on some level, for me, part of the um, goal here is to see the music business as just another strand of people trying to keep up with what the heck is going on. Sometimes they're in control, but they're often not. But what they always are is people. So um, when I'm writing about uh, William Krasilovsky and Sidney Schemmel's This Business of Music, I make a point of saying it was also the story of Bill and Sid, two company men dedicating the first edition to our wives, Shirley and Phyllis, for their constant encouragement, taking the train in from the burbs to make legal boilerplate out of any pop contingency. And I, and I love that. I love the notion that um, the theoretical challenge of popular music can be about finding a way to notate hip hop, but it can also be about these guys trying to, you know, help us understand what the Harry Fox office fees mean or whatever else <laughs> is being confronted. Cool. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is Burt Williams, Nobody from 1906. And that was Nobody by Burt Williams, recorded in 1906. And the third strain you say, say is a major thread to the book is the literature around major figures. And Burt Williams is one that you uh, pick out to, to discuss. And you say that that he, he went from quite a figure of liberal vaudeville in the wake of his death in the early 1920s. Then there's a long period when he's viewed tragically by the counterculture as the plastic opposite of rock and soul. Then he regains iconicity. What a great thing to do, regain iconicity, for his masked identity as a figure of black Atlantic double consciousness. Tell us a little bit about Burt Williams. Start with the basic who, what, when, where, because a lot of people don't even know who Burt Williams was, the first African-American star of Broadway, a man who most, I guess, always performed in blackface, even though he was black. How did you... Yeah, although, although um, one thing I've never been able to verify, but I'm pretty sure of, is when he actually recorded songs in a recording studio, I don't think he was in blackface. So anytime we actually hear his voice now, 
I think we're having a remarkably different experience than audience did seeing him actually on the stage. He's a figure from the um, late 19th and early 20th century, um, um, comes from a West Indian background. His family moves to California. Um, he decides to become a theater performer, allies with another man, George Walker, and they create the company of Williams and Walker. Um, Williams performed as a black man in blackface, seeing the American black man as a character that he's was embodying in um, performances like the one we just heard, Nobody. Um, Williams and Walker as a troupe put on musical reviews that became almost the equivalent of Broadway musicals and had an incredible satirical fierceness to them and style. Um, we are not able to fully recover what it would have been like to go see the musical in Dahomey in the early 1900s and, and understand what was happening on that stage. We only get bits and pieces of the story. Um, for me, when it was talking about Burt Williams or later talking about figures like Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, the thing that drew me in as a reader was seeing how even if the work was largely the same, the understanding of the meaning of that work was changed both by time and by evolving notions of what mattered. Um, Burt Williams, such an, probably the most obscure figure that I do this for. Um, at the same time, I think that when we understand our century, and I do want to keep insisting that one of the things that marks our century musically is that we don't necessarily believe anymore that a theatrical blackness like Burt Williams's was somehow inferior to a blues realism of someone like Robert Johnson, um, who also gets treatment for, for the evolving literature around him. If we don't necessarily believe inherently that blues is truth and show business is fake, then we have a lot of work to do figuring out how we value the great showman versus the great bluesman. And that's where reading about Burt Williams becomes so fascinating and why the people who've increasingly written books about Burt Williams, this sort of little shelf of books that started coming out in the 1990s and continues to this moment, um, is exactly the same people who are re-theorizing the meaning of Black American music in general within this broader context of what the cultural studies writer Paul Gilroy has called the Black Atlantic, that whole diaspora from Africa into all parts of the Americas. And Sorry if that was a little crunchy. It's a big story. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. And now I want to kind of backtrack a little and throw a sentence at you for you to parse out. Um, this, this is one, I think I wrote this uh, on, on the wall, um, the place I was staying when I originally read it. I cleaned it up, but, but I did write this on the wall because I didn't have anything to write it down with in the middle of the night when I was reading this and I was sick. Syracuse, New York uh, last summer. And it says, nothing looms larger in American music than African-American music, real, racially fantasized, and one-drop rule conjoined. From blackface yeah. minstrelsy to spirituals, ragtime, jazz, blues, rock, soul, hip-hop, and EDM. So this particular part, 
real racially fantasized and one drop rule conjoined. Can you parse that little phrase out for me? Yeah, have you ever have, have you ever encountered a little a little known musical by the name of Showboat? I'm guessing you probably have. Um, Once or twice. So, show, <laughs> so Showboat, which gets an entry here, starts as a novel by Edna Ferber, gets put on Broadway in the 1920s. Um, Paul Robeson, interestingly backed by the Paul Whiteman jazz band, has an enormous early pop hit with Old Man River. Then it becomes a movie in the 1930s. Um, the first moment that's supposed to make you cry and empathize in Showboat is when two actors on the riverboat are forced to leave it because one of them has been passing for a white woman. And to avoid being arrested, the, her husband has them... Uh, drinks a bit of her blood, um, cuts her finger and drinks a little of her blood to be able to say he has black blood in him. And by the laws of Mississippi, any amount makes you a black person. So what's, so they cannot be arrested for miscegenation. And this is an incredible moment in American musicals. It's the first American musical that really tries to be a big statement about American identity. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't other moments in Showboat, like um, the main character performing in blackface at, at one point, that don't test audiences watching it today. But I think, in a way, having that primal scene in such an important position in the larger story speaks to this bigger way that um, questions of race, questions of miscegenation, um, a kind of notion that Black culture is the dominant note, no matter how small an element and has to always be seized upon and emphasized or the real story is going to get lost um, is um, is has to be there for us as 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 listeners. And and that's complicated because, of course, the other great story of American music in the 20th century is how rock music evolving out of rock, sorry, out of rock and roll essentially try to push that black influence to the margins, to the, to the, to the place on the river that's earlier, a tributary, not a mainstream. And so when for a time, the story of American music was being written through the filter of rock criticism, I think some of that black centrality got diminished and that revisionism has itself been now under siege for a good, a good long while. Yeah, almost 20 years. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about the sentimental versus the vernacular. So you've got a section in your introduction you call the sentimental and vernacular. And this was new to me. I hadn't seen it put this way I, I had seen it more in the context of rockism which you hadn't said that word but you were just kind of describing rockism versus poptimism um which isn't entirely i'm kind of squeezing those into brackets but to tell us these terms what does sentimental mean what does vernacular mean you've already kind of alluded to them define each and, and talk about how they are in opposition and kind of in partnership with each other 
Yeah, I mean, one of the gigantic things that happened when records became listenable, let's call it 1926, and electrical recording has replaced acoustic recording, and you can hear Louis Armstrong blow a trumpet and scat on West End blues in a way that you couldn't have heard had he been trying to make all of that come through just as air um, compressed onto onto a wax cylinder. Now you have the voice preserved in some kind of significant way. What happens is modern music becomes transfixed by that voice. It could be Um Kaltum singing Egyptian music. It could be a tango out of South America. And for the next 50, 60 years before digital recording techniques start to change that again, there's this incredible, almost cult of vernacular sound. And what happens is what had been the leading notion of what moved culture, which was feeling and identification and the link between crying over what happens to little Eva in Uncle Tom's cabin and wanting to abolish slavery, or if you were an even more revolutionary figure, abolish capitalism, that becomes replaced by a different kind of belief system. And there's many good uh, books, <laughs> I hope I cited 90% of them, I'm sure I skipped a few, um, dealing with this. Um, but what they share in common is their grappling with how the 20th century increasingly by the middle of it and and certainly into the era of rock, soul, country, and hip-hop came to prize vernacular sound, sound that you could connect to a group of people as they lived in a certain place, as they were part of the scene. Um, along the way, that meant that you had value changes. Sentimental culture was often now seen as too feminine, too genteel, where vernacular culture claimed it was kind of more of a guy's culture and, and had an authenticity factor going on. That's where it all connects to the debate between rock and pop music. But what happens by the 1980s in the era of Reagan, in the era that sees the countercultures of the 60s and 70s start to fade in significance and a kind of neoliberal capitalism start to build and build. What happens is that vernacular culture starts to seem much less like a successful revolution and more like a God that failed. So now you have to start thinking about vernacular music, not as something that has given you a religious experience, but as something that is in the past, that is a diminished force but needs to be interpreted. And that's where cultural studies starts to really become a key factor. That's where academics start to really manifest heavily in writing about American music. So if we use this as a kind of heuristic device, a way to um, break down different kinds of ways of hearing music, what we're also, I think, seeing is why, for this good stretch of the 20th century, vernacular music was seen as so revolutionary, and why subsequently that has you know, created more raised eyebrows.
And you talk about, um, at one point, a couple of writers who um, knocked over Rockism's House of Cards. And you particularly... <laughs> <laughs> particularly shout out it's always so, it's always so weird to have your village voice type sentences quoted back at you <laughs> <laughs> like how chris gow feels um so so you cite ellen willis speaking of chris gow and simon frith as as two leaders of that and and you know to me i was introduced to this fight way late i, I didn't get hit to this until carl wilson's book about celine dion but uh as you point out it'd been going on since the early 80s, since the Thatcher era, like you say. But why did you single out Ellen Willis and Simon Frith in particular? What is it that they did in their work that that knocked over this house of cards? I'm going to insist that we throw Stuart Hall into the mix, too, and and rebuke you for not um, bringing him up earlier. But um, but let's let's go with all three um, and make him a kind of. Uh, trinity like Michael Jackson, Prince and Madonna. So you have <laughs> Ellen Willis, who's the first feminist rock critic. She's certainly not the first feminist music writer. Um, even in her day, we could look to the soul music writer, Phil Garland, as a powerful um, other writer. Um, certainly before both of them, Zora Neale Hurston, um, who over the decades has loomed larger and larger as a figure. But what Willis was doing was she couldn't ever buy into this um, male-centered version of vernacular culture. And so from the beginning, she was looking to someone like Janis Joplin and saying, you know, this notion that you can be a multi-million selling rocker and have instrumental virtuosity and be seen as liberatory and rich, all these things, it's an impossible set of contradictions. And Ellen Willis was thrilled to unpack each and every one of them and blow them up for you. You could never think about rock music's values the same way if you gave Willis's essays a chance. Um, and as early as the collection beginning to see the light, that was pretty easy to do. But even before that, in the 70s, Rolling Stone illustrated history of rock and roll book, her work stands out for how it was um, in such inherent contradiction to the belief systems of all the men around her. And boy, there were a lot of men. Um, second figure um, in the mid seventies and really who schools Simon Frith to a certain extent, um, Stuart Hall. In, he's the leader of the Birmingham Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. Um, let's just call that the Birmingham Cultural Studies approach and, um, and puts together this incredible book, Resistance Through Rituals, that I regard as the essentially the velvet underground of music books. It's like the one that got passed around and each person who read it went on to become a Paul Gilroy or a Simon Frith. And so um, what cultural studies in resistance to rituals did was just first say, no, it's not true, this vernacular stuff, but we're fascinated by moments when that tension between the democratic side, the capitalist side, the side coming from scenes, the side coming from dominant culture are suddenly put into opposition with one another. And let's find some language around how that happens and start to make the story of the scene as important as the story of the great artist, the story of the subculture as important as the story of a genre. Um, so that then becomes Simon Frith's tool 
for how to become what he was, which was both an academic and a critic, loved and included in all the rock critic anthologies, but at the same time, a founding figure in popular music studies. For Frith, having um, the tools that a Ellen Willis, a Robert Criscow, a Greil Marcus gave him was one set, but also the tools that a Stuart Hall, a Birmingham Cultural Studies gave him. Um, once again, this is why what I'm trying to do in this book is to take these stories and present them in three or four page distillations so that if you're interested in what I'm saying about Stuart Hall, read that little section on resistance through rituals. If you're interested in Ellen Willis, read that section. If you're interested in um, my analysis of sort of the forces pulling that first generation of rock critics in different directions, go to the Rolling Stone Illustrated History entry. Um, I didn't know any other way to write it, although along the way I, I discovered things by just chronologically letting one entry come after another in the order that the books were published. So, for instance, it, it fascinates me that Greil Marcus's book, Mystery Train, and Stuart Hall's anthology, Resistance Through Rituals, which could not be more different, came out almost at the same moment. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, split between Bebop and Louis Jordan happening at the same time. Um, nice. Bluegrass <laughs> coming out at the same time. But I want to cue our next snippet. This isn't a song. This is Bob Dylan being heckled at what was later called the uh, Royal Albert Hall concert, which of course didn't happen in Royal Albert Hall. But this is Bob Dylan being called Judas in 1966 and answering back. I don't believe you. And that was Bob Dylan and presumably a former fan uh, debating whether he's Judas or not. Uh, that's my attempt to summarize the uh, vernacular versus uh, the sentimental uh, in one, in one <laughs> 30 second snippet and also get a little bit of the, the rockism debate in there. And you talk about a number of, of uh, perspectives that, that, that have changed or debates where those change of perspectives can be seen. And one of them that, that comes up a lot is Eric Lott's revisioning of blackface minstrelsy. How do you see his work now from a perspective of 25 some odd years later? So embedded in your question and the sequence of going from a Bob Dylan being called Judas moment um, is the fact that Dylan in his 21st century um, revival named an album after Eric Lott's book on blackface minstrelsy. The reason that Bob Dylan's album Love and Theft has quotes around it is to acknowledge that Eric Lott's book is the source of that title. This is unheard of as far as I can tell. Um, there might be some earlier moment where Barry Ulanov gave Duke Ellington an idea, but um, um, I'm almost positive that Rudolf Fischer, the Harlem Renaissance writer, gave Ellington the notion of Harlem air shaft. But still, there's not a lot. <laughs> so, so what what Eric Lott did was he applied 
here I am again. He had been a student of Stuart Hall's at the Birmingham Center, and he applied Birmingham cultural studies notions to blackface minstrelsy. So instead of the American music story starting with Robert Johnson's ability to create a blues music of a power that the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and the like couldn't resist, now we had a story that was more along the lines of what I sometimes call twisted roots, where it was understood that there were not pure origins. There were these hybridities and anxious joining together of different kinds of sounds and styles. Um, and, and so Lot becomes essentially um, a figure whose work pushes us to rewrite everything. Now, a couple of things about how it sits 25 years later um, and very much in line of love and theft. So you have on the one hand, the theft side, and let's let Dylan represent that. <laughs> He's um, in the age of the internet, it's become much easier for um, uh, data-driven humanities people to document how much theft is part of his working method as an artist. He constantly includes language from other people, sounds from other people. Um, I would argue that that's one of the reasons he's such a powerful interpreter of American music. And I'm really looking forward to reading his book on um, different songs when it comes out this fall. That's Me too. definitely my most anticipated um, book of the year. On the other hand, from the perspective of love, I think what we've seen increasingly is a questioning by black scholars of whether it could ever be characterized from a black musician's perspective that minstrelsy involved love, perhaps enjoyment. Um, and then on the theft side, perhaps not as much enjoyment as terror says Matthew Morrison in an account that challenges Eric Lott pretty explicitly. Um, so that is yet another example of how these debates never go away and how they can actually influence our major, major artists in some cases. Um, when we are talking about the nature of American music, we are having a conversation that American musicians are very interested in. Now, sure, an ethnomusicology of hip hop in Tanzania is probably not, you know, living on Kanye West's side table. But when our assumptions about what to value in the music shift, it has a ripple effect. And certainly um, um, the ways in which musicians themselves are part of this story matters a lot to me. I continue to believe that the greatest book on hip hop is Jay-Z's Decoded for, its abil for his ability to encompass the whole history of hip hop in his lifetime, for the attention to craft and the details, for the insistence that we see the dominant frame of hip hop as the story of the hustler, and for so many other specific things. Now, would I have liked him to credit Dream Hampton as his co-author? Yes. Yep.
Yeah, hard to get those those credits. Let's go ahead and hear our, our final cue. And this is um, Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love. Let's Talk About Love by Celine Dion. And of course, that's the title of Carl Wilson's 33 and a third book um, about the album of the same title. And for me, at least, Wilson was the one who who sparked off or locked into, into words the poptimism versus rockism debate and totally changed my thinking about um, music criticism and aesthetics and everything else. I'd already come to a point in my life when, as a grunge fan and an alternative rocker in the 80s who who very much rooted for grunge to happen and then was kind of heartbroken and crushed when it did happen i kind of abandoned my faith in my own aesthetics and recognized my sexism and white privilege and all that stuff and and also seeing what trying to be rock stars had done to myself and my friends none of it was good and so i was really ready uh for what wilson had to say and let's talk about love um do you see that as as the primary defining debate within music uh, criticism in the early 21st century, or are there other debates that you think are just as significant or even bigger? So when Carl first presented a little snippet of that book, I was sitting next to him. We were both presenting at the same panel session, and it was at the POP conference, something that I'm probably proudest in terms of my own career of of having organized. It started in 2002 and has been happening every year since. So it'll be, I guess, 21 years come next spring. Um, and I remember when the moment came to give the POP conference a name, it seemed to me that we had to call it POP because there was no other word that would work certainly not rock or hip-hop to call it popular music seems stuffy somehow and that was the gambit if you create a space for academics and non-academics in an equal mix to talk about pop music of any kind from any period you're going to change the rules and what we quickly found was that this was resonating. And Carl's emergence was definitely a key piece of that. But so too, for example, was Daphne Brooks, um, one of our figures from the first year whose book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, is a pop conference sensibility the same way Carl's book on Celine Dion is. I think that collectively, and I'm not gonna try to name check the 50 or 60 greatest figures of the pop conference, we would need another hour for that. Um, um, this was sparking because it was a moment when American Idol was debuting. It was a moment when the music industry was in crisis as its business model was being forced to give way to new models. So there was a space 
for a lot of reconsideration to go on. The genre communities, the, fo the formats that had sort of been linchpins in the late 20th century were crumbling, and there was an openness to new discussion. Some of that came through talking about Optimism versus rockism. A lot more of it, I would argue, came through black scholars creating new networks and prominence for their writing. Gradually, not nearly fast enough for my taste, we started to see more international voices coming into the mix. And so this is where I think the 21st century has been so vital. The old rules don't work, and so there's space to float new ideas. And it is great that the thing that Carl used to open up this was literally a big sinking ship. <laughs> because that's, that's what pop music had sort of, um, the popular music industry had become. And strangely enough, the, the one thing that could let you transcend that um, was not going to be rocking harder than anyone or slapping out some hip hop. It was going to be um, something connected to the ability of a pop song to make you cry and empathize with other people. Nicely, nicely bow tied there at the end. Um, <laughs> put a ribbon on it. Um, and I was going to throw some things out. You know, a book like this is a wonderful book to just, I just keep it in the bathroom. I hope that's not an insult and just reference it all the <laughs> time. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's a book to intersect with at various points, not necessarily something to read to the cover. But I was kind of planning to throw a couple of, you know, favorites of mine that you didn't include and ask you about those. But I think I'm going to ask you about a whole sort of subgenre that you didn't include at the end. And that's, you know, Napster's not in your index. There's a whole literature of books about music industry's failure to, to adapt to the digital music revolution. Why did you kind of de-emphasize that, that whole debate? Hmm. I'm now going to feverishly look at my book and go, it could be that I just didn't think that there was um, a book on that topic that had really transformed how I thought about popular music. Um, certainly, there are elements of that in different places here. So like the entry on recordings that becomes a kind of synthesis of people writing on records all the way through to the vinyl revival takes up aspects of that. But you are probably right that um, as I started to become focused on the 21st century, um, that was maybe less important to me than, for example, Jose Munoz um, disidentifications talking about performance study and being um, queer of culture um, or um, international cosmopolitanism or um, um, sound studies or this and that. So, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no question that, you know, when you write a 500 plus page book, you both know that you are um, destined to exhaust your readers and then um, nonetheless 
equally destined to have someone tell you um, what you didn't include that should have been included. Um, I know Alex Ross wanted me to include this book that I finally got to reading this summer and maybe should have been in there, um, George Lewis's A Power Stronger Than Itself about um, the 50-plus year history of um, the AACM in Chicago with its tradition of black experimentalism. Um, Grill Marcus told me, asked me why Jeff Dyer's book on jazz wasn't in there. Um, and, you know, that's, that all comes with the territory. Um, will I ever get to do a second edition of this? We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's hoping. My guest has been Eric Weisbard, and the book is Songbooks, the Literature of American Popular Music. Thanks so much for writing this, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming in with such great questions. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Tony Fletcher to discuss his co-authored autobiography of soul legend Eddie Floyd. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.